Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Ribbon. This podcast is brought to you by Pete's Car Smart Kia. These guys are not here just to sell you a car, but they believe in building relationships with their customers and the community. Visit their website at petescarsmartkia.com and be sure to follow them on their social media platforms as well. Hey everyone, this is Ryan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host and oncology nurse, Pam McMillan. Pam, welcome to week two. Hey Ryan, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. good. We had so much fun doing this last week. Here we are ready for week number two. Yes, we are. I'm excited about today's episode. We're going to be covering PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, that's right. You know, we talked about last week, um, going through cancer treatment, there is really not one piece uh, that's not stressful. I think, you know, um, even even finishing is stressful. And so uh, we wanted to, to dive right in in episode two with a uh, topic that most folks can benefit from. And so we're, we're really excited to have our guest today, Liz Clark. Uh, Liz is a local licensed professional counselor who specializes in the treatment of PTSD, complex trauma and attachment. And we know Liz well. Uh, Liz uh, helps us here at the the Cancer Survivorship Center. So Liz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great. So uh, let's start off, Liz, real quick, and just let's tell our listeners what exactly you do at the Cancer Survivorship Center. So um, like you said, I'm a licensed professional counselor, and so my main role at the Survivorship Center is to provide emotional and spiritual support to the survivors who are accessing services. I lead, um, co-lead a cancer care group, which is a, an emotional and sp- spiritual support group with uh, Bob. And I also have facilitated other classes teaching about different topics for caregivers and survivors. And these range anywhere from coping to grief to trauma prevention or post-traumatic stress prevention. And then I also have seen individuals on a case-by-case basis. Very busy. We're very lucky to have you. (laughs) And we are. We're very, very lucky. You know, when Pam, one of the things we talked about early on when we started the, the program here, the Cancer Survivorship Center, we really wanted to have strong, you know, best in class, uh, instructors, facilitators and so forth. And I mean, when we talk about, um, stress and, and going through a traumatic situation like cancer, you need someone who specializes in PTSD. I think Liz is a perfect person. That's right. I would totally agree. I would totally agree. So Liz, can you, um, tell us all things about PTSD and, um, what the definition is and, We want to learn more. Okay. Well, that's a good place to start. So I probably won't be able to tell you all things Mm -hmm. in the time that we have. Um, PTSD is pretty complicated, and anything that I tell you guys is probably going to be an oversimplification. So I hope the listeners just kind of keep that in mind, and I would encourage you guys to do your own research to supplement this conversation. But really, in a nutshell, post-traumatic stress is anything that overwhelms the nervous system. So we are hardwired with a stress response system that helps us survive really difficult, scary, hard things. And those could be anything from some kind of assault or a motor vehicle accident or a medical trauma or an abusive relationship. Um, But the stress response system, we have really three main uh, defenses when we are under threat. And I think this is going to be relevant for the people who have survived something such as cancer. The first thing that we usually do is we look for social connection. Like we look for safe people. This is something that the survivorship does really well. Um, if we can find safe people and the threat is um, dismissed or the, the threat leaves, then a lot of times our nervous system doesn't engage. The second thing that we usually default to is going to be a fight or flight response. And in fight or flight, we're preparing ourselves for action. Like physiologically, I think 27 different things happen. Don't ask me to name them all. <laughs> um, but like our heart rate increases, we get adrenaline, we have an increase in cortisol, and we're, we're basically preparing um, to act in some way. But in some circumstances where there's not an escape or where we're powerless to really control whatever the threat is, we will default to what's called a freeze response. And in a freeze response, our goal is to endure. And so the things that happen physiologically um, help us endure painful processes that we can't escape. So a common term for this would be called dissociation, where our mind and body essentially separates, uh, which aids in our survival as well. So there's a lot of different things that we do to survive that we're just designed to do, which is a really good and wonderful thing. And these happen on a continuum. So like you can think about like scary things that have happened or 
things that were stressful, and you can um, probably recall times where you felt like you were in fight or flight or where you felt like you were in freeze. But most of the time in everyday circumstances, even though our nervous system activates, it will eventually deactivate and will return to a normal baseline. So like a good example of this would be like if you've ever been pulled over by a police officer which I will not disclose if that <laughs> ever happened to me. But, Guilty. Um, if, you know, when you leave that um, circumstance, when you're driving home, a lot of times you probably are anxious and hypervigilant. Maybe your heart rate's racing faster and you feel tense. But over the course of a day or even into the next day, you probably eventually return to a normal state where you're just driving as you did before. Post-traumatic stress happens when our nervous system stays engaged and we don't return to a normal state. So the fight or flight mechanisms or the freeze mechanisms stay activated over a longer period of time. So what that looks like, um, you know, you've probably heard of like the classic PTSD presentation with a combat veteran who comes home and is hypervigilant. Um, so this is like evidence of the nervous system staying engaged where they're, they're, they're on alert because they're preparing for action in some way. So somebody who's stuck in fight or flight might be more irritable. They might have sleep disturbance. They might not be able to sleep well. They might be more anxious. They might have a higher heart rate or higher blood pressure. There's certain some, certainly some physiological things that kind of stick around for a while. Um, somebody who is stuck in a freeze response might seem a lot more depressed or maybe numb, avoidant, kind of just going through the motions, disconnected. They might have um, lower energy, a lower resting heart rate, or issues with intimacy and attachment. And then there are also people who will pendulate between the two responses. So the stress is high, but they go from being overactivated or hyper-aroused to being under-activated or hypo-aroused, which would be that freeze response. Wow. Wow. That's a <laughs> lot of information. It's a lot of information. And again, it's I mean, an oversimplification. But in general, post-traumatic stress happens when our body doesn't recognize that the threat has passed. Right. And so I think, you know, if you if you think about a cancer survivor who's maybe been in treatment or has been battling cancer for a long time, um, it's really difficult, even if they know cognitively, it's difficult for that nervous system to really let the guard down. Right, right. You know, you're talking about with uh, cancer survivors, and, and, you know, we've heard on several occasions of various triggers and, and things like that. I know that sometimes smells, mm -hmm. um, um, certain things can really bring back memories of, you know, when they had their chemo or when they were at their radiation appointment and things like that. And so how else does that really apply like to cancer survivors other than maybe like those triggers like that? Well, trigger is kind of a, is, um, an interesting concept because it's anything that reminds us of the threat. And, um, we have, this is not a really scientific term, but in the counseling world, we call it trauma time. So there, there's like parts of us that are stuck in trauma time that aren't able to make a distinction between what was true then and what is true now. And so whenever there's any sensory input um, that reminds us of what was true then, these parts of us are activated and our nervous system responds as if the threat is still present. So a trigger could be anything from like something coming in through one of our five senses, like a sound or smell, but it could also be a belief. So for example, if in response to cancer, I believe that I am not safe or I believe that I am not capable or if I believe I'm a burden, if there's mm -hmm. anything else that activates that belief it could cause my system to kind of engage to, and I will react in order to keep myself safe. So, yeah, I can totally see that, you know, being a, a burden thinking, you know, uh, my family is having to help me. I can't drive to my treatment or I can't feeling um, helpless. Yeah. Feeling and, helpless. And I, yeah. I come home and I'm just exhausted and I just lay on the couch and why is, why is mom or why is dad always sleeping or taking a nap? Right. Uh, well, and so, so the, whatever triggers us could be anything from a belief to a sensory experience, to an emotion, to something like a certain action that we're going through, like physically. So like walking down a certain hallway where you're kind of flooded with all of this different input that activates all of those things. Um, and so it's certainly different for everybody. Um, 
there is a good tool. To, you know, if you're wondering about whether or not you're dealing with post-traumatic stress, there's a tool called a float back that can be really helpful. Um, and this is true for anybody who's dealing with something that's potentially triggering, which is where you just, you're noticing that you're responding. The first thing that you want to do is you want to assess whether or not your response feels appropriate and congruent for the situation. So does this feel like an overreaction or does this feel appropriate given the stress that I'm under? Um, and so if I'm walking in to get a scan, right. uh-huh. um, it would be appropriate to feel some anxiety about that. Um, and so we wouldn't necessarily say that that's post-traumatic stress, um, but we can be really curious about the anxiety that they're experiencing. And so with a float back, what we're doing is we're identifying, okay, what's, what's the story I'm telling myself or what's the belief connected to this? What emotion am I experiencing? Am I experiencing anything in my body, like physiologically? Like, where do I feel that? And have I ever felt this before? Mm, And does it, you know, does this feeling feel familiar? Did I feel this way when I was in treatment before? Did I feel this way when I received the diagnosis? Um, Or is this feeling kind of a novel and appropriate for this moment in time? Um, and again, we're always trying to make that distinction in post-traumatic stress treatment. We're trying to make the distinction between what was true then and what's true now to help some of those triggers um, desensitize or disengage. Right. Okay. Wow. So Lots of information. Yeah, lots of information. <laughs> it makes perfect sense, right? It makes right. perfect sense because if it's, if it's a new feeling, it's probably not, you know, PTSD. Right. Uh, even right. though it's normal. Mm-hmm. Even though it's normal for you to probably be excited or anxious or worried and or whatever that that feeling is yeah, for we, that specific moment. Absolutely, we were created to feel, and so these feelings have value. And so the goal is not to get rid of the feeling. Um, usually, the goal is to one: we want to make a distinction between past and present, but we also want to care for ourselves through the feeling. So, if, if anxiety is an appropriate response. Um, then we have to figure out ways to tolerate it or manage it, not get rid of it. Right. Right. So it's okay if I feel anxious going to the cancer center, knowing that all those memories that maybe not have been good memories. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That might not be PTSD. It just might be a normal response then. Right. 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 Okay. And it might be PTSD. We don't know. So right. like, um, we want to make sure that we are staying really curious about what we're experiencing when we find ourselves in moments like this. Um, and I do, I want to make just to kind of, this is sort of a side note. Um, when we're talking about diagnoses and mental health diagnoses, we're really just talking about a list of symptoms. So the origins of mental health, I mean, PTSD is more of a physiological response, but in general, the origins of mental health are, um, there's a lot we still don't know about what's actually going on in the brain. And again, I think PTSD is a little bit different, but when we're looking at a diagnosis, we're just looking at a list of symptoms that describes what a person's experiencing. Um, and so we're, we don't have to be quite as concerned as label with labels, but we mm-hmm. want to be really curious because if we do a float back and we find that this is a familiar feeling and it goes back to something pretty significant, then that significant thing might need our attention. Maybe we need a little bit of support or we maybe it's something that we need to pay attention to and we need to go back and revisit for our own healing. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's complicated. So. Very complicated. Yes. And so as a cancer survivor, how does it manifest? How does PTSD manifest for a cancer survivor? So I think for a cancer survivor, um, the, the triggers are going to be unique to the cancer experience. Um, I think generally speaking, an individual who's suffering from post-traumatic stress is going to find themselves maybe in, um, they might find themselves chronically um, in fight or flight, or they Mm. might find themselves chronically in a freeze response. And so we want to make sure um, that we kind of look at what's their overall experience. Are their reactions appropriate? They might find that they have specific triggers related to their cancer journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I would um, I would assume, and this is just an assumption based on what I know about the cancer survivors that I've worked with. This is not based on any research. It's just mm-hmm. sort of a personal observation. But I think cancer survivors might be more prone to the freeze response feeling powerless just because there's less control over the specific trauma that they've experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that that can look like in um, 
everyday life is sort of feeling powerlessness in other areas of life, even when there's a choice. So um, again, it's that brain being able to make a distinction between what was true then and what's true now. So if I was powerless then, but I'm suffering from post-traumatic stress, I might then assume that I'm powerless in a lot of other circumstances as well. It takes mm. over them. Right. You know, you know, and you Which up, can look like depression. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, you brought up about feeling powerless. And I know, Pam, you, when we were working with cancer patients in our previous lives, um, mm-hmm. we always kind of talk about how from the moment that you're diagnosed, your, your life becomes in control of someone else. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. here's your, here's your schedule for the next week. And then when you finish that one, we're going to give you another one for the next week right. and then another one for the next week. And I know you guys that are listening, uh, many of you obviously can probably relate to that, that it's very scripted and you show up at this time and you have lab and then you go have this done. And then depending on that, you sit and wait and then you have, okay, we're good to go. Let's go get, you know, let's go. It's kind of like that, that roller coaster They you get yeah. that diagnosis right. and you go 90 to nothing and then. You're done, and then what? So I totally can understand how they feel helpless and powerless in decision-making. Yes. Well, and so, again, if we think about, like, the stress response system, and we – and there's – so there's a lot of resources on this. So, like, if you're listening and you you want more information about this, um, a couple of good resources – are, there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Vessel van der Kolk, and he really kind of talks about the research associated with some of this stuff. Um, and then um, some of what I'm talking about is based on polyvagal theory by Stephen Porges. So if, you, if you're interested in doing a little bit of research, there is stuff out there. Um, but if we look at the stress response system and the, that continuum of responses, um, a freeze response or just enduring going through the motions because I feel powerless is a legitimate survival response. So fight or flight, I think sometimes is viewed as a superior response because we keep our action mechanisms and we maintain a sense of power. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a superior response because our brain is responding in the way that it was designed based on the threat that's present. And so mm-hmm. if I'm surviving by enduring, it's because fight or flight is not an effective means of survival. Um, but what that looks like over the long term is just this sort of pervasive experience of feeling shut down and powerless and potentially depressed. Now, when people are healing, one observation that I have made um, when people are specifically going through treatment for post-traumatic stress is that they sometimes tend to experience these in reverse. And so as people unfreeze, they might feel um, more of more anxiety or more of a tendency to go into fight or flight where they're trying to control things. They might be more mm, aggressive yeah. or more controlling mm. because they're trying to take back ownership of those action mechanisms, but their stress level is still just as high. And so if we look at it in reverse, it's like I unfreeze and now I'm doing all of these things to try to control my circumstances, but that's not really going to work either. And so if we go even further, we look at social connection as kind of the landing point for people in their healing process, which again is where I think 24 Hours in the Canyon Cancer Survivorship Center really shines, is helping mm-hmm. people reconnect to their social supports. We see it. We see it we here do. every day we with do. our p- people that come in. There, and we, it, it sounds very cliche, but there's something about being with people who've mm-hmm. been through a, a very similar situation. Yeah, absolutely. And they are. They, they get it. They understand. It's like twins, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they understand each other without having to really speak. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, going back, so people can go back backwards. Um, so... Sometimes whenever I see patients, um, they may not want to go back for follow-ups. They don't want to go back to the center. Is that something that should be a red flag for me, their caregivers, and they don't want to talk about their cancer anymore? They're very angry about it, um, stressed? Yes. Okay, so that's a very good question. Um, and I'm going to try to articulate this well. <laughs> but, um, Way to go, Pam. So <laughs> Stumped her, finally. <laughs> a couple of things come to mind. One is in a freeze response. So um, again, this is an oversimplification. But when I am powerless to control the threat, then I need to endure. 
and I need to get through it. And so this looks a lot, um, so it can look like dissociation where we separate mind from body, which helps us tolerate pain um, and also interrupts memory formation. But this also can look a lot like compliance or avoidance. So compliance and avoidance is basically when um, in my mind or in my body, um, I have determined that doing things doesn't help. So I'm going to go through the motions. I'm going to say yes when I'm going to when I mean no. I'm going to avoid avoid the topic because it doesn't really matter anyway. I have no control. I have no power. Right. And so when you see people who are avoiding, to me, I want to be really curious about what that's about because it's, if it's coming from this dissociative freeze response where they're they're avoiding because they feel powerless, then it could be a red flag for post traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. Um, in other circumstances, like if you see somebody who's complied in order to survive, which compliance is a legitimate and valid survival response. You might see them later on in life be overly compliant because they have learned that that's what keeps them safe Um, because they're not distinguishing between past and present. Um, Now, here's where I think it gets a little bit tricky with cancer survivors is that it's not, you know, if, if somebody has endured an assault or an abusive relationship and they're distinguishing between past and present, then they, you know they're trying to get to the understanding that not all of relationships are like that. Um, when it comes to our physical health, there is still areas that we do not control. So there are still areas where they are actually powerless. There are mm-hmm. still you know it can yeah. still be intrusive and uncertain and unpredictable. And so there's I, I think. For cancer survivors, there's this unique challenge in trying to maybe disengage my nervous system so that I can have a good quality of life, but I also cognitively am maintaining this awareness of my um, mortality that maybe other people aren't as connected with because there are going to be ongoing circumstances where I'm powerless. And, you know, a scan Mm -hmm. is one of these. And so can we really say that it's post-traumatic stress if the threat is still kind of there and always will kind of be there um, and there's always this uncertainty? And so I think that's really difficult to distinguish and to be at peace with. Um, You know, maybe like unique to this population. Sure, Mm -hmm. sure. We we hear that a lot, Mm -hmm. you know, of building up to going back in or, you know, having that scan or having that you know, one year follow-up visit and the, the various appointments that they, they have to keep. Um, but it's very interesting that you said too about not wanting to go back or, or not wanting to talk about it. And I know we've had several Pam that say, Oh, I don't want to come to the survivorship center. Cause I don't, I don't want to be around people that are going through what I've been through. Yeah. Or right. I don't want to, I don't want to revisit that chapter. Mm. It's and, depressing. It's sad. I don't want to be, I've been there, done that. I want to move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that kind of brings back to that safe place, you know, and we've, we've really stressed a lot to say, we don't dwell on the fact that you've had cancer or that you're going through cancer. It's more of how can we help you? You know, how can right. we come alongside you and assist and, and, and help walk that journey, whether it's during treatment or after treatment. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that by, by like, you know, it's very comforting to hear that one of the, the, the pieces is a safe place. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I really, obviously I'm biased, but I really feel like this is a safe place. Yeah, it it is. And I, you know, I think about like our, um, our cancer care support group, the Mm -hmm. spiritual, um, and emotional care group that we have. Um, a lot of times the topics that we're talking about have nothing to do with cancer. Right. But sometimes it is about cancer and it's more specifically about cancer when we have a new member coming in and you can see the sense of purpose and the members who have been attending for a while and their ability to step in and comfort and validate the concerns that the person has, you know, and, and being able to ask questions Mm -hmm. like, is it normal to feel this way? Is it normal to feel that? Like just being really curious about the process and when did you feel better and, and what it was it like being on this medication for 10 years. Um, and so you, you see, um, that, that it's not necessarily that, the people in the group want to talk about their cancer journey all the time because they don't. Um, I think I can safely Correct. assume that. Yeah. I think you're right. Um, you're exactly right. That is an assumption, but mm-hmm. I feel safe making mm-hmm. that assumption. Um, but I think when they do talk about it, there's a greater sense of purpose because they're connected to the community. 
And mm-hmm. so it feels like, okay, that, that I have something to offer. Something be- to share. Mm-hmm, because of the experiences that I've had. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, is there any risk factors um, that we need to be aware of with PTSD and the cancer survivors? Yes. So the risk factors are going to be true for, for any human mm-hmm. um, and not just for cancer survivors. I think it, obviously one of the risk factors for ongoing PTS with cancer survivors would be the uncertainty um, associated with their, their medical history and, and kind of the risk of recurrence and things like that. But for just people who are who exist as humans. Um, Us. <laughs> yeah. um, there's, there are definitely some risk factors. Um, previous trauma increases our vulnerability to further trauma. And so um, we all kind of have, um, we, we have a baseline of, um, of stress, and then we have an amount that we can handle beyond that. And our baseline is determined by a lot of different factors, like our resources, which could be people or skills or finances, um, but it's also determined by our upbringing and our belief system and all of those things. Um, so previous trauma is going to make us more vulnerable. And the way that I describe it is, you know, you, you probably all heard the term, what doesn't kill you, make you makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. And this is not untrue except when it comes to post-traumatic stress. So if I physically want to get stronger, then I may need to go in and lift heavier weight. And I'm going to um, intermittently increase the weight that I'm lifting, and I'm going to allow myself time for recovery, and and I'm going to put my body under stress. And as a result, because of my stair-step approach, I will get stronger. But if I go in without any training and I lift way too much weight, what will happen? Yeah, exactly. I, I'm going injure, to injure myself and yeah. I actually will be weaker, a lot weaker as mm-hmm. a result of the injury. And so post-traumatic stress is kind of like that. It's, it's an emotional injury that makes us more vulnerable moving forward because the stress that we experienced was beyond the resources that we had to manage it. Okay. So it has overwhelmed the nervous system like we talked about before. Right. So um, I don't have the resources. Um, and so now I'm more vulnerable to stress in the future. So previous trauma is going to increase that risk. Um, the, the resources we have outside of that will also increase or decrease the risk. The number one factor that influences resi- resiliency is social connection. So again, we kind of go back to this. Right. Mm-hmm. If I am able to safely connect to people, then I'm going to interrupt that stress response system from just overwhelming me. Um, you know, this is true for kids. Like, so the uh, Harvard, um, they've done a lot of resiliency studies in children. And the number one most important factor for childhood resiliency is the presence of one attentive and attuned adult. Just one. Just one. Yeah. And so um, relationships matter a lot. Yeah. So that tends to be one of the biggest factors. Uh, people who are more isolated are going to be more at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other factors like our belief system. What's the story that we tell ourselves about this? You know, um, spirituality influences resiliency. If I am able to, in spirituality, religion aside, is just my sense of meaning, purpose, and hope. Mm-hmm. So if I'm able to anchor to some sense of meaning, purpose, and hope, I'm less likely to develop post-traumatic stress. Um, there's also things like our upbringing, you know, um, our physical health, mm-hmm. um, the coping skills that we have, our intelligence sometimes is a factor. So there's a lot of different things that influence it. Now, with that being said, I do have to kind of in, um, sort of input a disclaimer here. I remember um, when Ethan Zahn came and spoke to the survivorship. Yes, yes, And yes. I, I feel like he put this so well. Um, somebody had asked him something about managing his physical health because he's very active and, and healthy. And, and I cannot remember the exact words that he put this in. So I'm misquoting here. How, but he said something to the effect of, look, I was doing everything right and I got cancer twice. Right. right. I remember that. And, mm-hmm. and so exactly. and I feel like that's so validating for people because you could do everything right and you could still have post-traumatic stress. You could do everything right and still be diagnosed with cancer. So we do need to recognize we have some choices, but we are not sovereign. We're not ultimately in control. And so it's sort of reconciling, um, can we be at peace with that? Um, and let ourselves off the hook a little bit while also maintaining some sense of power so that we don't go into this state of powerlessness. Um, right. You know, that's interesting because that's, that's a huge 
thing. I know several people personally that have said something to the effect of that. I work out every day. I eat healthy. Mm -hmm. I don't drink Cokes. I don't smoke. I don't do this. I don't do that. And how in the world did I end up with this cancer? Right. And that's one of those questions you just go, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's just that way. Um, and then of course, how you cope with that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and just a really funny story really quick. Um, is I remember someone who told told us that and said, uh, so once I, once I settled in on that, like it, it wasn't anything I did or didn't do. I just ate hostess Twinkies for like, a minute, you know, and <laughs> so that was their, <laughs> and I'm going to make up for some of that bad stuff that I did, you know, that I didn't do. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make up for it now because it, it, it's not that it didn't prevent me from getting cancer, but that's not the whole point. You know, it's just how you cope with it and how you deal with it. And in this case, I think it, they probably felt a little bit better after they ate a few Twinkies. Yeah. <laughs> Don't well, we all? <laughs> I mean, cause it could go both ways, right? Like if we, um, I think it can feel better to think that we can control all the factors but then we also feel a lot more guilt and shame when it doesn't work out the way we hope. Right. Right. Um, and and I think you know sometimes we view that as an alternative to to feeling powerless. But it really, I think, health lies somewhere in the middle where we're mm. being really um, honest about our responsibility. Like, what what's my actual role in response to this circumstance that I am experiencing? So do you think like different types or the type of cancer plays a role in the risk, the risk factors or the stage, if they're metastatic or if they're um, early stage, do you think that plays into PTSD? Hmm, That's a really good question. I don't know. I don't know. Um, You should design a research study around that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I don't know. I don't know if there's any research that exists on that. I I do think, um, so a couple other risk factors that I didn't mention is going to be how unpredictable the threat is and how, um, if it's acute or chronic. So you think somebody who has suffered um, from cancer more than once is going to be more at risk. And I think somebody who has um, undergone treatment for a longer amount of time or had more interventions, um, so more surgeries, um, radiation, chemo, is they're going to be probably more at risk. Um, so the, if there's prolonged exposure to the threat, that makes a difference. Um, and so I think all of those things are probably going to come into play. Age certainly makes a difference. Um, younger, older? Younger is more at risk. Um, so I have a great metaphor here. Um, I love metaphors. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think about uh, if you have a well-rooted tree that... Um, and, and this is maybe more appropriate for like an acute trauma, but if you have a well-rooted tree that is in a thunderstorm, it might lose a couple of branches, but a year later, you're probably not going to be able to tell that it went through something difficult. If you have a young tree, especially if it's not anchored properly, then the storm could change the direction it grows for the rest of its life. So if you experience trauma when you're young, um, I think in the mental health field, we used to think if you couldn't remember it, it didn't matter as much, but the opposite is actually true. Um, If you experience trauma when you're young, it changes the way that your brain develops from then forward. So whatever part of the brain is developing at the time that you experience something, that that is the part that is impacted the most. So with young children who experience trauma, you're looking at things like sleep regulation, metabolism, heart rate, attachment, attention. Like you're, you know, side note, ADHD looks identical to PTS in children. Mm-hmm. Um, so it changes a lot of mechanisms that aren't cognitive or it impacts a lot of mechanisms that aren't cognitive, which is true for adults too, but to a much um lesser extent. I think of our young adults that are childbearing ages Mm -hmm. that it affects them. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. and they have those stressors of they can't start a family or wanting a family, but not able to. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, your, your risk factors and, and, um, in, in discussing those, I was, I was picking up on some prevention. Mm. Um, is it safe to say or is it unfair to say um, it's okay to have this kind of post-traumatic stress because mm-hmm. of what you've been through? It's okay. Mm-hmm. But it's not okay maybe to stay there. It's okay. I mean, it, we need to kind of work through that. And we'll talk about, you know, you've, you've hit on some of those things of the prevention. Is that a fair statement? 
I know. Mm-hmm. I, the only reason I say that is, is because if I'm listening to this and I'm sitting here thinking, well, well, that's me and that's me and that's me. I have that and I have that. I don't want someone to feel like I now I'm labeled and I'm, I've got, right. I've got this, I've got it. Right. I don't, I, don't, I don't want it, but I've got it. Right. So like, again, if post-traumatic stress results when anything overwhelms the nervous system, okay? So like you are not in control of the threat um, and you are have limited control over the resources that help you handle the threat. And so it's, you know, post-traumatic stress is really an expected reaction to extreme circumstances based on the way that we were designed in order to survive hard things. So like it is like you have survived the way that you were designed to survive because your brain is amazing. Right. And mm-hmm. like by whatever means you survived, you did a good job. Um, and so I think that needs to be stated. Um, this is not, it's not a character flaw. It's, it's not um, something that you, you should have handled differently. It's an expected reaction to extreme circumstances. Um, with that being said, I struggle with the statement that it's not okay to stay there because healing is hard and risky. And so, um, you know, sometimes I will come across people in my practice, whether they have suffered from cancer or um, some kind of assault or abuse or military trauma or whatever it is. And disengaging the nervous system is really scary because it has aided in your survival and kept you safe. And so to do the work to disengage those mechanisms and return to a normal baseline can feel really threatening. And I will never really know the risk involved in doing that. And so I have to make the assumption that people are doing the best that they can and that if you choose to stay there in that state, it's, there's a reason for it. Um, and so my job a lot of times is to help people make a distinction between past and present to make sure that we are being honest about the current circumstances um, and to help people acknowledge that they have a choice to do things differently if it feels like it's worth the risk. But I'm not going to judge you um, whether, you know, by whether or not you take that risk. So another metaphor here, and this, this is not mine. This is from a trauma therapist named Anna Gomez. She works with children. Um, But she, and again, I'm probably misquoting her, but when I was at one of her trainings, she, she shared this metaphor that really stuck with me. And it's, it's basically like, you know, when you have trauma, it's uh, kind of like growing up in Alaska and maybe you've never been exposed to any other environment and you learn that you need a big heavy coat to survive. And all of a sudden you're uprooted and you move to sunny Mexico and you're really hot and uncomfortable and people look at you funny and they don't get why you do what you do. But in your mind, if you take the coat off, you will freeze to death. And they're like, (laughs) hey, you should really just take the coat off. Your life would be so much better. And you're like, nope, like I don't want to freeze to It's not worth the risk. This is, I would rather be uncomfortable and misunderstood than risk freezing to death. And so I think sometimes it can feel that way for a trauma survivor, um, whether it's a medical trauma or something else, like, you know, if I know my anxiety keeps me alert and serves a purpose, then I may not want to give that up because if I let my guard down, something bad will happen and it will catch me, you know, it, it will be unpredictable and, and I'll, I'll be less likely to manage it. And, and that doesn't mean that these stories we tell ourselves are true. It's just that we usually have this narrative that um, helps us assess whether or not it's really worth it to do the work. Um, and so, you know, it's, maybe it's okay to stay there. Maybe it's not. I don't, I don't know. Individualized. Yeah. I don't know the individual circumstances and what risk is required to do something different. True. Um, you know, again, this is not uniquely about cancer. I'm just kind of talking about getting an understanding of trauma in general. In general, we talk about the person who has survived through compliance because, um, maybe at one point, you know, fight or flight or, you know, saying, no, or setting boundaries didn't work or got them hurt worse. And so mm-hmm. now they comply as a, uh, in order to survive. And when you tell them, hey, you should just say no, like you should just say no. They're <laughs> as like, if it was that easy. As if it was just a skill that they needed to learn. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's how you think it? <laughs> yeah. Why haven't I been doing that all um, along? But in their mind, they're like, when I say no, I feel like I'm going to die. Um, yeah. like it's so it's a total different meaning. It's a total different meaning. And it's not, um, sometimes in trauma. So we talked a lot about the nervous system involvement. Um, sometimes my cognitive brain and my nervous system don't speak the same language. So mm-hmm. I can feel one way and think another. 
And so when we look at actual treatments for post-traumatic stress, we're trying to get those parts of us to communicate so that they're congruent. Because the, that person who's complying to survive, they probably know I, I can just say no, um, but they don't necessarily um, feel that they can say no, if that makes sense. So is it a, okay to say it's okay not to be okay? Yes, I, I mean, that's a yeah. great way to put it. It is okay to not be okay. That has to be comforting for several of our listeners. Mm. I mean, I feel like I would feel better knowing it's okay. I mean, it's okay. What you're going through is okay, and it's okay to be there. Right, and there are resources out there, and you know, you there are resources that you can access if you decide it's worth the risk. Right. Um, you know, speaking of the survivorship center, social connection can feel really risky for some people. Hmm. Um, yeah, we hear that a lot. We, we hear that a lot. I don't know anybody. I don't want to go. I don't mm-hmm. want to. I mean, I don't. I know when I meet with patients, new patients, and I'm going over the calendar of events, and they're like, I can't go by myself. Mm. No, that's that's too scary. Yeah. And so, you know, the benefit is they can bring somebody. Right. So maybe right. that makes them okay to come. Right. And having, you know, various options, mm-hmm. you know, like... Um, you know, connect it. You, you're allowed to have superficial friendships. Like you're allowed to have people that never, that you're never intimate with, that you never have a serious, like you're allowed to have people that you keep at an an arm's length. That's totally permissible. Mm -hmm. Like if everybody in your life knew your whole story and was super close to you, that would be extremely overwhelming. Oh yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's okay to come here and not be super close to everybody. Like it's okay to come here and just be an acquaintance and get maybe a break and come up for air for a little yeah. bit. And kind of a, just absorb and not mm-hmm. not be a giver. Yeah, just of, show up. Just, yeah, of just, just being up. present. It's totally okay. Wow, that's, mm. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, I, I love your, your discussion about, your, about spirituality. I just want to touch on that for just a second, if you could go back to that about, it doesn't, it's not necessarily religious. Mm-hmm. It's just having a purpose, a meaning, and what was the third? Hope. Hope. Mm-hmm. Purpose, meaning, and hope. And I think a lot of people um, may be struggling in that area. Uh, and I think that's, that goes right back to the belonging and goes right back to the um, safe space. Yeah. And what was my purpose of going through? Maybe my purpose was to help someone by being a mentor or helping someone mm. by sharing my experiences and what I learned. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. So, so what are some things that caregivers, loved ones can help whenever they see these red flags um, for our cancer survivors? Okay. So I feel like we could have a whole podcast on that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're count with your highlight, your top 10, yeah, okay. top five. Uh, well, okay. So um, I'm not very good at lists. So I'm just going to talk. <laughs> um, I do think for caregivers, one of the things that they need to do um, is they need to make sure that they are um, maintaining a good... Um, awareness of their responsibility. Okay. So like, it's not their responsibility to change or fix the survivor that they're in a relationship with. So there needs to be boundaries in place so that the caregiver does not burn out. When we, um, you know, um, Brene Brown, she's, uh, a lot of people know about her. She's pretty popular. She, she has a quote and, and again, I'm probably misquoting, but (laughs) something to the effect of like sacrificing your needs and boundaries isn't heroic. It's death by resentment. Mm-hmm. And so one of the biggest um, risk factors for caregivers is burnout and resentment, which again, could be a whole podcast. Right. right. So however, if they're maintaining awareness of their responsibility, then that's going to play a big role in preventing that. Um, and so the language that they use with the survivor, they could use something like an I notice statement. So it might be, I notice that you are really quiet lately, or I notice that you're staying up late or you're not sleeping. I notice that you haven't had an appetite. I notice that you haven't wanted to go to your appointments. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I can notice an observable behavior, what I'm communicating is I see you, like I see you. And then you let them decide if they want to talk about it or not. So I notice that you um, have been really quiet lately, something on your mind. Um, I notice that you haven't been eating. Um, are you feeling okay? Like just mm-hmm. sort of making an, an observation and then letting the survivor choose whether or not they want to engage. So it's not the caregiver's responsibility to make sure the survivor responds to this stuff in a certain way. Like this, you know, you, you need to let the survivor maintain a sense of power and right. agency and let them choose not to. 
Right. Let them choose not to. If they, if they don't want to go there, let them choose not to. Um, so another good little, maybe relationship hack would be something called decoding where you just identify the feeling. Um, and again, you're trying to kind of validate or put words to what you're observing. So, um, and you can start with an, I notice, and then you follow it up with, are you feeling this way? Or if they, um, are already talking to you in your conversation, you can say things like that sounds really scary. Um, it sounds like you're not wanting to go to this appointment. It sounds like you're angry right now. It sounds like you're, you're sad. It's so just identifying the feelings. And again, using those types of scripts can sometimes, um, help the caregiver avoid trying to fix. Sometimes we try to fix out of our own discomfort because we want to make sure we're saying or doing the right thing. But, um, when you fix for the survivor, you're reinforcing the sense of powerlessness. So again, we could do a whole podcast over just that, um, because it's really complicated. It's really complicated. I can totally see that. Um, Uh, I know that sometimes, um, whenever I meet with the survivors, also they tell me that, you know, their loved ones are always trying to fix it. And sometimes Mm. they don't want it to be fixed. Right. And, um, they want people come up and say, oh, you need to think positively. You need to fight this. And the survivor doesn't want to do that. And so it's hard. And so I never have the right words to say to them or um, tips to help them. But I think those tips that you gave us. um, That's a good place to start. Mm -hmm. It's a good place to start. Um, But yeah, I I think when we feel uncomfortable, we try to fix. (laughs) All right. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm projecting. I I think you're right. I mean, and and I can certainly relate to the control and Mm. feel like I need to be in control of everything. And it's hard to not be in control. And I can totally see how this uh, weaves itself yeah. in, in and amongst every, every person that's involved with the cancer survivor, yeah. you know, from a family to, you know, a church group or, you know, whatever the support network that they have or that they may not have is right. unfortunate. Yeah. Um, but I can see how that can kind of weave the web through there. Mm. Yeah, wow. absolutely. Oh, gosh. Liz, thank you so much yes. for uh, being here. You know, I, I, I want to. Uh, definitely we want to, we may want to come back and, 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 and revisit, um, from a caregiver standpoint and, and fatigue and caregiver mm-hmm. fatigue. I think that would be a great topic to, to do, but, um, you know, one of the things that we do here on our podcast is, uh, we, we kind of end our podcast with what we call Pete's powerful moment. And so, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to share with, with all of our listeners, uh, a powerful moment that you've been a part of or witnessed or seen, uh, in your day-to-day workings with, in this case, with cancer survivors? Yeah. Um, well, I, I probably think the most significant thing that I witnessed or experienced is um, through my involvement with the cancer care group that we offer here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been, I think I've been involved with the group for, it's been three years. Right, since like, inception. <laughs> yeah, like a long time. Um, and and so what, what's been really cool is to watch the development of relationships within that group. And so like we definitely have a core group of people who have become very tight-knit. Um, and we also have people who just come from time to time and kind of pop in as, as needed. It's an open group, so you certainly don't have to commit to the group. But what I've observed is that we do have people who have developed very deep friendships. They check up on each other. Um, they are involved in each other's life outside the survivorship. They, I, I would go as far as to say that they view each other as family. Mm-hmm. Um, I would agree. And it's, it's been really cool to bear witness to. Um, and I, I'll be honest. Um, I think, you know, they don't even need me in that group. Sometimes <laughs> they just take such good care of each other. Um, that they've, they've really taken ownership of it. Um, and when somebody new comes in, like I said before, they really have a strong sense of purpose and kind of bringing them in and, and responding to whatever questions or needs that they have. So it's been cool to watch, you know, and you know, it's not what you would consider your stereotypical support group. Right. It's not, it's actually, you know, um, there's almost always a topic planned. So we, we start the group with an open forum and sometimes that takes our entire hour. (laughs) Um, however, sometimes people don't really want to talk. They just want to come and just absorb. And so, um, Bob and I always have something in the back of our minds that, um, we can kind of fall back on that we feel might be helpful depending on the culture of the group that day. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, and we laugh a lot. There's, I was about to, <laughs> we can always We're hear loud. it. I was about to say that too. There's a lot of laughter. And so it's not a somber group. It's not, no. a, it's not and we a, cry sometimes too, but, sure. but I think we laugh more. 
That's so awesome to so. to hear. Um, I know mm-hmm. that they do feel like they are family, um, mm-hmm. and sometimes this is their only family. So that's yeah. so cool to see. Yeah. Liz, thank you for what you do for survivors here locally and uh, for being a part of the, the Survivorship Center. We really, really do appreciate you. And uh, I know that some of our listeners have benefited from uh, your services, and I know they would be echoing what I'm saying and, and saying a sincere thank you. Thank so. you. Well, I appreciate that. And um, and I do want to kind of throw out a bit. We talked a lot about post-traumatic stress, but we didn't really talk about the treatment of it. Um, but there are treatment options available Um, And so I I hope that anybody listening feels like they can kind of reach out and um, explore what those are, Um, you know, and, and of course, and you know, that's the the good thing about here. They can reach out Mm -hmm. to us, they can, and we can Mm -hmm. put them in touch with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and just as a general reminder to anyone listening, you know, all the things that we do and offer and provide such as the support group, such as uh, um, programs and activities are all free. Mm-hmm. And um, we're very blessed and fortunate people to do that. And so that's one of those things where you don't have to live with whatever you're going through. Um, you know, we have resources like Liz to be able right. to help. And we, you know, we don't make a referral. We don't, we just say, if you would like to speak to someone, we can certainly make that happen. Mm-hmm. And um, there is no cost. And that's a, that's a beauty of what we're able to do. And so unique about the Survivorship Center. Yeah. It is. It I agree. Is. I agree. So, yeah, absolutely. So real quick, that phone number is 331-2400-8806-331-2400. And um, seriously, if, if you need to, to visit and you think, I, I listened to the podcast and I, I feel like I have some post-traumatic stress uh, symptoms and I, I feel like I, I need some help. Um, then definitely we're going to do our best to get you in touch with Liz and and go from there. And we'll make sure to list those um, authors that you mentioned in the podcast um, in the description. Yep. Awesome. Absolutely. That sounds good. Well, thank you guys for listening this week. I tell you, uh, you're going to want to come back next week as well. You know, uh, and you're probably going to hear us say that often because we really feel like we're having, we're going to have great guests <laughs> and great information. Uh, next week, we'll be visiting with Zach from Chemo Cars. And Pam, I know uh, you're very well uh, versed in Chemo Cars because there's a lot of folks that use Chemo Cars that come to the center. Right. Another stressor for cancer survivors is transportation. So um, I know for me, um, cars, when my lights go on, my tires are low, I have a flat tire that stresses me out. But and then, um, but I don't have those appointments to go to. So, um, for our survivors, we have a resource that's available to them um, that's right. to take them to their appointments that they, they don't miss their yeah. treatment. And it's so, a very unique way of doing it. So you're going to yeah. want to come back next week to listen to, uh, beyond the ribbon when we visit with Zach Bolster from chemo car. Thank you for joining us for this episode of beyond the ribbon. Make sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media for news and updates. If you'd like more information about the 24 hours in the Canyon cancer survivorship center, please visit our website, 24survivorship.org. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week.